0: Hello, everyone. For those of you who are new here, welcome. This is a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. And every episode, I sit down with a panel of experts in marine science and conservation, and we take a deep dive into one of your questions. And for our regular listeners, welcome back. Thank you so much for all the lovely feedback and comments on season one. We've loved hearing from you, and thanks as well for all of your questions. Um, We will be answering some of them on this season, so stay tuned. Now, on to today's episode. We are kind of continuing a thread from our last episode of The Whole Tooth, where we spoke to the brilliant Jodie Rummer and Carolyn Wheeler on the physiological impacts of climate change on sharks. Now, today's episode is looking at a slightly different aspect as we ask our experts, can sharks adapt to changing seas and focus on shark behaviour and movement ecology? Of course, when we say changing seas, this doesn't just mean in environmental terms, but with respect to expanding human activity as well. So we'll be talking about not just the effects of things like ocean warming and decreasing oxygen levels on shark space use, but also the effect of human activity and how these can overlap to produce compounding effects. Our two experts today, who will be guiding us on this fascinating deep dive, are shark scientists, Professor David Sims and PhD candidate Freya Womersley, who are part of the Global Shark Movement Project or GSMP for short. As the name suggests, this is a collection of over 150 scientists from around the world who are sharing and analysing data on how sharks move about and use our oceans. David leads the GSMP and is also a Senior Research Fellow at the Marine Biological Association and Professor of Marine Ecology at the University of Southampton in the UK. His research focuses on the movement, ecology and conservation of marine predators, and he has studied a number of different species of shark, including the second largest, the basking shark, and more recently, the blue shark. He has authored more than 180 papers and is best known for his biologging studies of shark behaviour. Freya is a researcher at the MBA as well, and is approaching the final year of her PhD, which uses data from the GSMP to answer a number of very topical and important questions, including the present day distribution of pelagic sharks, how to quantify human threats, and how future environmental niches of sharks may look in response to climate change. She has also spent a lot of time in the field with whale sharks and for her master's thesis studied interactions between them and tourism. While she was doing this, she discovered some super interesting findings about how whale sharks recover from injury, which she talks about in this episode. I could have talked to David and Freya for hours. They are so incredibly knowledgeable and their work is so timely and innovative but unfortunately we only had 60 minutes so without further ado let's dive into our episode. Can Sharks Adapt to Changing Seas with David Sims and Freya Womersley. David and Freya hello and welcome to the podcast hi hello, thanks for having hello. us <laughs> it's so um I'm, I'm so looking forward to talking to you actually because I often get this feeling with the podcast where I've read so much about people and I've cited them in my own work and so I almost feel like I know the people which is very weird I'm sure a lot of people who are on social media feel this way as well so it's so nice to actually meet you both Um I would say in person but you know obviously, on Zoom. Um, But yes, we are going to talk today all about the work that you guys do, understanding how sharks use and move around our oceans and how that is going to be affected by things like climate change, by fishing pressures, and what this might mean for sharks. But before we get into that, um, I always like to kick off the podcast with a couple of questions just to get to know you both. Um, And our first one is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So, David, I will come to you first. Sorry. Yeah.
1: uh, Yeah, I've been (laughs) asked this a few times, actually, and it never gets easier uh, to answer, actually. What's the most memorable? But I suppose if we're going to think about memory, I've got to think right back. Because if something, if I can remember something now that happened a very long time ago, then clearly it was remem- memorable. So I'm going to go for something that happened 32 years ago. Uh, and you, everyone's thinking, you know, oh gosh, I wasn't born then. But yeah, 32 years ago, I, I was lucky enough to be diving and uh, was in the, in the same plankton patch as two basking sharks. Mm-hmm. And I watched them for a long time feeding up and down, sort of mowing the lawn. And yeah, so for 32 years, that is in my, in my head. And it's, I can see it now as if it were yesterday. So yeah, definitely my, my memorable experience, among many.
0: (laughs) Incredible. I was I was so hoping that you would uh, say a baskin shark one
1: yeah it, it was incredible, I mean just to be in the, in the in the presence of something so huge doing going about its business, you know we were really lucky to intercept it on its incredible journey i I you know, still feel privileged about that
0: oh amazing and and Freya, how about you how was your what was your most memorable experience in the ocean?
2: I think that the most memorable one for me was when I was working in the Maldives and the northern Atolls after my contract ended. We travelled to the deep south to an island called Fuvamula or Formula. And it's just north of the southernmost atoll in the Maldives called Adu Atoll. And it's a sort of a, a big oceanic pinnacle like island that descends really deep um, on the coast. And there are really strong seasonal currents and you get loads of really big pelagic um, megafauna passing through. And it's amazing. And, and one dive we travelled to the south of the island And we descended to around 50 metres and the vis was really, really good. So you could sort of see the bottom around 60, 75 metres. And it was just sort of a sandy bottom at the time. And then you'd suddenly start to see these kind of shadows emerging out of the bottom. And they were these huge sort of two metre tiger sharks and... um, there are around six or seven of them, these kind of majestic, sort of docile, slow, moving moving shadows. And then they started to ascend a bit to come and sort of check us out. And there was one particular two-metre-plus two female that kind of started to swim towards me. And I'm trying to take a really good camera shot, you know, be all calm and relaxed and still. And you can kind of see the moment in the camera where I just sort of lose my cool. And she kind of gets <laughs> quite close and the camera's like this, you know. And just out of pure excitement. And I think you know, just being in that moment when you see that animal for the first time, it's just such Mm -hmm. awe and adrenaline and reverence and all of that kind of mixed into one. It was such an amazing moment. And we started to descend after we'd seen all those tigers and we got to about 40 metres and we came across a school of hammerheads, scalloped hammerheads, (laughs) and we kind of penetrated the edge of the school. So they it kind of broke up and they started Mm -hmm. to surround us and it was just like, being in this soup of hammerheads mingled in with these tigers that were slightly below. And it just, I can picture it, like David says, I can picture it now. And I think for me during, you know, lockdowns and desk-based, um, desk-based work, it's these kind of really strong memories of just being in the presence of these animals that, that's kept me going. And it was such an amazing dive and I remember it so well. So I recommend anyone keen on, on sharks or diving, you should definitely check out that location. It
0: was amazing. Sorry, what was it called again? I love the name of that.
2: I always pronounce it incorrectly, but I think it's, <laughs> I say for- formula, but it's pr- pronounced um, or it's spelt like Fuvimula, F-U-V-A-H-M-U-L-A-H. So it's a, a local name. Fuvimula, Fever- 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 yeah. It rolls off the
0: tongue really well, but yeah. What <laughs> I'm is... probably saying it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I Well, I hold my hands up and say I wouldn't know how to say that, but... Yeah, what an incredible dive, just like layers upon layers of sharks, just insane. It was epic, yeah, really, really special. I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about the Global Shark Movement Project itself, which you are both involved in. Um, So David, can you explain to us what the project is? Um, and how it came to be.
1: Yeah, sure. So the Global Sharp Movement project, uh, globalsharpmovement.org, there's a website that you can uh, uh, look at and it it shows some of the work that we're doing and what the aims are. But just to give you an idea, it's a movement about movement. And so our aim, uh, sort of five years ago, when we started this, myself and uh, my close collaborator Nuno Kairosh, who's at the University of Porto, Mm when we brought this into being, when we initiated it, had this idea uh, was to bring together research groups who had collected satellite tracking and uh, sort of data logging, you know, dive data, temperature data from all sorts of different pelagic sharks. The reason that we wanted to do it um, was because up to that point, there had been studies in sort of discrete areas in different oceans but there hadn't really been a global sort of view. We had this idea to bring together all these researchers to share data, and from that to undertake global analyses, which would help us to understand the space use of sharks in relation to environmental changes. So, you know, were there particular drivers of environment, uh, environmental variables that were driving particular behaviors, space use patterns, but migratory routes, and maybe shifts in distribution as well, according to changing seasons, seasonality of the oceans. And also, perhaps importantly, most importantly, in relation to anthropogenic threats. And so, if you visit the website, you'll see we have a, a whole range of projects uh, going from the overlap, a, a global overlap of sharks with longline fisheries, to uh, as you'll hear about from Freya, sort of whale sharks in relation to shipping. But we've also got projects on the, uh, the way in which sharks use oxygen minimum zones. And hopefully I can chat a bit more about that in, in the podcast. But so that's what the global shark movement is about. It brings together uh, about 40 research groups across 26 countries. So there's about 150 to 200 scientists involved, all with the same sort of vision Mm-hmm. to share and to work together to enable us to undertake these broader scale analyses, to try and put in context some of the problems and some of the interesting ecology that's fa- that these the sharks are involved in. I mean, when I started, I was chatting earlier, you know, about sort of 30 years ago when I started on <laughs> sharks, you know, back in 1856. But, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, 30 years ago, no one, really there were three of us doing phds on sharks on elasmobranchs in uh-huh. the whole of the uk yeah. just three of us myself wow. nick dolvey mm. and jim ellis and we were the only three to my knowledge uh, we used to sort of meet up at little conferences here and there but now it's it, the, you know there's so many more people interested because there has to be there mm. has to be this interest because of the problems the, that are posed And i'm sure we'll, we'll, we can go into those obviously
0: yeah, absolutely. And I, I, there's you're completely right, there's so much of an appetite for it, but not just within the scientific community, but also, you know, from the general public as well, who are becoming more aware of the threats that sharks face and also changing their perceptions of sharks as well and wanting to protect them a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, when we get asked questions for this podcast, an overwhelming number of questions are about climate change or about fishing pressures and how shark distribution overlaps them. There seems to be a real worry about it. But yes, in the uh, in the show notes, we'll link to that website. It's really easy to use. It's got some lovely infographics on it and you can see all the projects really clearly. Um, and of course, Freya, you work with some of the data from the Global Shark Movement Project for your PhD. So... I wondered if you could tell the listeners what it is exactly that you are looking at. So what questions are you trying to answer?
2: Um, Yeah, so I'm one of the lucky ones that gets to utilise all of the amazing (laughs) data that we've compiled as part of the Global Shark Movement Project. And I just have to say first off that it's, it's truly amazing to be part of such a monumental collaboration. And it is where I sort of always hoped that I would end up. Um, So, for my PhD, I'm developing methods to analyse the tracking data that we have within the GSMP to answer some of these important and topical questions in um, shark ecology and also conservation. And at the moment, arguably two of the most important questions related to that are what threats are sharks exposed to and where, and also, you know, how might they respond to climate change, so our, our future oceans. And these are actually big questions so they require big data sets and collaboration which is what we can facilitate here at the gsmp um, so to build on my previous research experience and my interests, we developed my first chapter which is in the final stages of completion now we think and that's looking at the threat of vessel collision posed um, to the whale shark from the shipping industry so whale sharks spend a lot of time feeding in, in shallow surface waters and they can aggregate in close um, coastal regions which are close to ports as well and there's often a huge amount of this large vessel traffic in these areas so that's these huge cargo ships, um, tankers as well, transporting goods, fuel, all these sorts of things across the world um, and in areas where they overlap the sharks can be struck by some of these colossal ships and mm. this species is endangered and they're experiencing population declines and in a lot of regions it's actually unclear why their populations are declining so we don't really know why so many individuals are um, being lost from these populations and so that's what this chapter is aiming to do we sort of want to demystify this issue we want to try and identify whether um, shipping might be causing some mortality and, and leading to some of these population declines and we want to bring this to the attention of not just the sort of conservation managers, but also the general public. We want everyone to know that this could be a real impact of our activities of shipping that perhaps is less um, less understood at the moment. And that's what a paper like this can do. Um, and then moving on from that, my my next chapter aims to model the global distributions of whale sharks. and. In doing this, we can generate habitat suitability maps. And um, this involves analyzing the tracking data that we have alongside a suite of sort of remotely sensed um, environmental conditions like temperature oxygen, chlorophyll A, that sort of thing. And this can help us identify the species' preferences for their environments, which means we can then extrapolate these preferences or apply these preferences to regions that we didn't have tracking data, which allows us to have a kind of a broader understanding of of which habitats are suitable, where these sharks may um, be spending time. And these maps are are really important because they can help us identify um, important habitats, conservation areas, They can be used to improve on some of these threats quantification study. So perhaps instead of tracking data, we can base our threat quantification on suitability or global distribution. And of course, really importantly, they provide us with a baseline for present-day distribution, which we can then compare against future climates, so our changing oceans in response to climate change. And that's where my uh, last few chapters will focus. I'll be looking at how are these present-day distributions going to be shifting in the years 2050, 2100, in response to climate change Um, that's been promoted through human activities.
0: Oh, it sounds so fascinating. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of your PhD and excited to read the papers when they do come out. Um but yes, I can I can see why it's your dream PhD. It sounds inc- incredible. Um but we've kind of been talking about it a little bit already. Um, but you know sharks notoriously are not easy animals to study. They don't tend to stay in one place and You know, they live in a huge, vast place like the ocean. So what technologies can we use to sort of understand where they move? So we've kind of mentioned tags. Um, So for somebody who doesn't know much about that process, um, can you explain how we even go about this?
1: Okay, I'll start off and then I'm sure Freya can come in. But when you study pelagic sharks, as we do, which, as you mentioned, can swan off, <laughs> you know, you, you attach a tag and then they disappear, you, know, you travel for a thousand kilometers, uh, mm. you, you know, you ne- you're necessarily never going to see them again. So you have to have technology which can operate over these huge distances and over long time periods as well. But I guess in my sort of career, the, the, the device that, that had the, had, I think has had an incredible impact is the so-called pop-off satellite uh, archival transmitter. And this is something that sort of, it looks like a, a karaoke microphone,
0: um,
1: <laughs> and it's got an antenna on it. And the idea is that you attach it to a shark, much like a sort of parasite, you know, a lamprey or something, clamps onto a basking shark, you attach it. And it goes beneath the, sur- the shark goes beneath the surface, and the tag is recording mm-hmm. essentially three things, the pressure, which obviously gives depth, the water temperature, and light. And the light level is really important to measure because from light level can be calculated the, uh, the longitude and the latitude of where the tag is. Then at a pre-programmed time, that little device I mentioned, the, the karaoke microphone, would pop off, float to the surface, and then relay its data via the Argos polar orbiting satellites encoded in that data would be these light level data, the depth data and the temperature data. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, a really amazing scientist Barbara Block, uh, uh, then working at at Stanford University, was was really the first to sort of test this pop-off satellite device and to use light level geolocation to uh, reconstruct the tracks of bluefin tuna in the Atlantic actually, Mm -hmm. and we were were around at the time when these tags were just coming out and we were lucky uh, to get them pretty much uh, within sort of a a few months of them being being commercially available. And we were able to put them very quickly onto basking sharks. And so that's why we Mm -hmm. ended up being sort of, I guess, at least one of the first groups to uh, use this light level geolocation method to reconstruct the tracks of basking sharks over months and months uh, of, of the year.
0: Yeah. But, oh, my God. Fascinating. I, I've just <laughs> got so many images in my head now of when you said karaoke microphone, my initial thought is lots of sharks with that kind of like Britney mic on their on the side of their face. I know that's not what they look like, but that's what comes to mind.
1: Well, they used um, to email us, you know, essentially. Yeah. Uh, the shark. It, it, it got reported in the press that we, we used to get emails from sharks. <laughs> and it's sort of true because the tag would pop off yeah, probably quite close. Yeah, obviously mm-hmm. close to the shark if it was still around in a patch or something, yeah. a basking shark. The tag would come to the surface and relay the data to a, a satellite <laughs> receiving station in Toulouse in France of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would relay back to the MBA lab and essentially yeah, via an email. So I would get an email from shark, you know, 30467 Bertha, <laughs> of course, you know, or some such name. And it would say, oh, you, I'm off Scotland, essentially, um, and I've been diving to 400 metres or whatever. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. you do get these uh, sort of amazing sort of uh, uh, things happen as a consequence (laughs) of this technology that you're interacting more with the shark than you thought you would at the start.
0: Amazing. I mean, not many people can say they've been emailed by by a Baskin shark. That's for sure. Um, And you can see it on Twitter now. They've got um, a couple of different organisations have got Twitter pages for the sharks that they tag. And it's almost like it's the shark given the updates of where they are. It's amazing. It's like um, a little insight into a a secret world that kind of we wouldn't ordinarily be part of. Um, And it's incredible to see where these animals go. It's
2: really the miniaturization of these different sensors that's allowed us to kind of progress things. So we're now able to get some sort of um, some of these recorders really quite small and added into different types of tagging technologies. So, for example, oxygen sensors, um, which Mm -hmm. we've now been developing in our lab with a new tag called the Trident. And I think there's some information about that online, isn't there, David, with... um with our lab and on the Global Shark Movement Project. And it's just being able to get these batteries much smaller, being able to get these sensors much smaller and fit them into tags that allows us to monitor not just their movements, but also the environments that they're experiencing both at the surface when it's relaying to satellite, but also at depth as well, if we're able to retrieve the tag. So it's really sort of expanding what we're capable of recording through being able to get more fitted onto the shark, because of course you don't want them lugging around this enormous tag that's got a, a video recorder on it. It's got these sensors this sensor so it's all about getting that small as you can so it's um, not influencing the sharks movement or life too much but then it's able to record and relay that with a sufficient battery back to satellite Mm -hmm. and that's all going on at the moment and it is amazing some of the the developments that we're seeing
0: and that brings us on really really nicely to some of the the findings and the outputs of your research as well. So one of the things that I was really interested to talk about is probably one of the most prominent results to have come out of the project and, and, and David, your work as well, which talks about the oxygen minimum zones, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and I just wondered if you could explain, first of all, what these oxygen minimum zones are and, and why they're important. And then also what you found about, you know, sharks and their behaviour around, around these
1: areas. Sure, yeah. Um, Just to start with some context, obviously the the point to remember is that the ocean is losing oxygen. This is something that's been happening. Uh, It's been recorded empirically for the last sort of half century. And models suggest that this isn't going to stop anytime soon. They suggest that this will keep happening at least for the next thousand years. The the, the fact that the ocean is losing oxygen uh, is going to be uh, an enduring problem. And These oxygen minimum zones in particular are important um, because they seem to be uh, areas of of particularly rapid change, rapid loss in oxygen. Mm. But for our part, um, working on on pelagic sharks, we became interested in them because blue sharks and shortfin mako sharks that we've been satellite tracking in the Atlantic, an incredible uh, researcher that we work with, uh, Gonzalo Musientes, uh, at the uh, Institute of Oceanography in, in Vigo in Spain, I did a lot of our tagging uh, uh, of short filmmakers and blues across the central part of the Atlantic when he was on, uh, uh, invited on to commercial longliners. And that enabled us to tag larger individuals that were also migrating to some of these more sort of, you know, well, to these open ocean structures Mm-hmm. which if you were just tagging on the shelf, you, you might, they might not go there in the time limit of your tag life, for example. And Gonzalo was able to tag. And what we found was that blue sharks and mako sharks, seasonally, some of the individuals headed south. And so from the central Atlantic around the, the, the Azores, for example, at a certain time of year, they headed south and they interacted. They came across an area off the west coast uh, of Africa, which is the Eastern Tropical Atlantic Oxygen Minimum Zone. And this has decreasing oxygen from about 200 meters to about 800 meters. So if you can envisage, it's sort of like a a blob, a bubble uh, of water that has uh, increasing levels of hypoxia as you go more or less towards the center, towards the core. Mm. And the blue sharks were migrating there and spending time in what looked to us above the water of the oxygen minimum zone in that surface layer. And so we're really interested to know more. Why is it that they were going there and and what were they doing? And what we found is that as they came into these oxygen minimum zones, their maximum daily dive depth decreased. So it got shallower. And initially we thought, ah, well, that's a clear response uh, to to oxygen. Because I mean, normally in the Atlantic, right out where Gonzalo had tracked them, we'd recorded them diving down to 1700 meters, both species, going down into the bathypelagic, where it's completely dark. And Gonzalo had also noticed that uh, the stomach contents of ones which were caught commercially Mm -hmm. were full of these hypoxia-tolerant cephalopods. And so they were obviously diving down into these uh, open ocean areas to feed on cephalopods. Now, in the oxygen minimum zones, Uh, blue sharks seem to be able to dive deep. So outside, you know, the maximum daily dive depth adjacent to the oxygen minimum zone would be about 1200 meters. But within the overlaying the area of the oxygen minimum zone, where we were tracking them using the Argos tags, the dive data showed that that decreased by about 40%. So actually, they got shallower, their dives got shallower by about 40%. So the maximum dive they did was about 750 meters. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that it was a complex of factors that were driving this. It wasn't just the oxygen, that was a main factor. And it looks like the blue shark can withstand mild hypoxia. You can imagine a blue shark holding its breath and saying, right, I'm going for it. I know that there are some hypoxia intolerant cephalopods down there, I'm, I'm going for it. And they make these dives, but they can't probably stay in that hypoxia for long. Uh, and that's indeed what we found is that as you uh, um, as the as the uh, oxygen starts to get lower, the dissolved oxygen constant gets lower. So the sharks, there is a, a boundary, a behavioral sort of response boundary, a threshold below which they're not they won't really go. Also important was temperature of the water as well. So in these oxygen minimum zones, there's there's really warm water there's very strong stratification which obviously causes this sort of the steep gradients and in fact the sharks uh, would also avoid the warm water. So here we have a situation of a shark being caught in the middle. It's got low oxygen below it and warm water above it and that's where the interaction with fisheries uh, became most interesting.
0: You did mention adding fishing into the equation so like I said, at the very beginning, we're not just seeing oceans change in the way of there's going to be environmental changes. We're also seeing it change in how they're being used. So one of those elements is fishing pressure. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit, bit about that. So how did those two things overlap in the case of the, the blue and the shortfin mako sharks?
1: The blue shark, they, they were undergoing habitat compression. So their habitat was being compressed into that sort of top layer when the water was too warm, obviously, they would go a bit deeper. So they, they were sort of sandwiched into quite a restricted uh, vertical niche. And, of course, one thing we noticed, uh, Nuno Kairos, who I mentioned earlier, uh, his group had done fantastic work uh, getting hold of the movements of fishing vessels using the vessel monitoring system, GPS data. And so Nuno and his colleagues very cleverly uh, managed to get Uh, the movements of the Spanish and Portuguese longlining fleet. And what we found very quickly was that there were hotspots of fishing activity. And over the Oxygen Minimum Zone was a fishing hotspot. And so we were really interested to explore that. Why why were the fishers being drawn there, you know, uh, most of the year? I mean, they were tracking the shark resources in that location pretty much all year round. When we looked a a bit further, we could see that where the sharks were hanging out, which, especially on the northern boundary of that oxygen minimum zone, so just off the coast of Morocco, Mauritania, near the Cape Verde Islands, there's a really steep northern part, a northern gradient of oxygen. And the sharks, it looked, the blue sharks, it looked like that was a boundary, a threshold. And that perhaps was aggregating them, because over top that area, the surface long lines were spending most of their time. It wasn't just that the effort was increased. So this is a long line each vessel uh, has, you know, and there could be 20, 30 longliners working a particular area. They each deploy every day uh, a long line that's about 100 kilometers long with about 1,200 baited hooks set at a particular depth. Mm-hmm. And you can see where I'm going with this. If you've got a restricted vertical niche of the sharks, they're mm-hmm. more likely to be found in a particular band of water. Mm-hmm. And it, it appears that the longline fishers, through their experience and their efficiency in this fishery, have, have learned that. And so in this region, they deploy hooks within that, vertic- that compressed range. We then, uh, Gonzalo and Nuno, who I mentioned, were able to get hold of the logbook data from the Spanish government as well, which was very interesting because mm-hmm. that showed us where the blue sharks and the maker sharks were actually being caught. Mm-hmm. And the blue sharks were being caught where the uh, fishing vessels were spending most time. The, the catches were much, much higher. They were up to 12 times higher on the northern boundary of that oxygen minimum zone compared to adjacent areas. So that that complex of climate change, ocean deoxygenation, surface warming, interacting with longline fishing setting at a particular depth, was enabling fishers to improve their catches, to increase their catches in that particular region versus one that was probably just only 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers further north. Yeah. So here it presents us with a question as, as researchers and as, uh, as, as people, as society, how does how will climate change affect the fishery catches in the future will they enhance will they exacerbate those population mm-hmm. declines we're already seeing of oceanic sharks
0: yeah i mean so effectively what you're ending up with there is is effectively like a shark trap so lots of different things are acting all at once to to sort of almost trap these sharks in one small area and then the fisheries kind of come over and, and, and overlap with that which is I imagine quite worrying because we've talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast but um, you know overfishing and over exploitation is probably the biggest threat facing sharks worldwide so if they can you know if climate change is going to make that worse or you know deoxygenation and all these other different factors that is extremely worrying um, and I mean Freya I'm, I'm going to unfortunately ask you to sort of look into the future here i'll get out my crystal ball <laughs> yeah but i mean um, and also in terms of like looking forward to the last couple of chapters of your phd as well which you've you've not written yet but what might we expect to see what kind of changes might we expect mm-hmm. to see in terms of shark uh, environmental niches and shark behavior you know as climate change advances will we be will we be seeing more of the same as what david's found or you know? we will be seeing slightly different things
2: yeah yeah well it's the ultimate question really isn't it and I think it's a question that we're still answering and we still will be answering long into the future because as methods improve and as we start to get you know more real-time observations we'll start to develop our ideas about it Um, but first off I think it's important to sort of divide sharks really by either species or groups because they will have these species or group specific responses to climate change and in our lab we work primarily on pelagic sharks and it makes it a little bit easier to discuss what we expect to happen if we consider just the pelagic shark group for example so adult pelagic sharks they're they're wide-ranging they make long distance movements and so we can sort of begin to theorize that they have a, a fair amount of freedom to select or or move throughout environments that meet their physiological requirements which means that if an environment becomes unfavorable so for example um, low do levels low oxygen levels it might be too hot or too cold we can assume that they can simply move away from that environment and similarly they can move towards environments that they may perhaps prefer so in terms of their their movements and their horizontal um, distributions we might expect them then to be able to adapt their ranges to remain within those environmental conditions um, that they're best suited. And indeed, because we expect these environmental conditions to shift in future, as a result, we're going to be seeing some shifts in in these geographical distributions in response to this. And it will, as David has touched on, sort of depend on the complex relationships between different variables. Um, but temperature as a starting point is a really good example to bring out here because we are getting a better understanding of how warming seas might start to impact um, shark and ray species year on year. So temperature in future, we're going to have sort of warmer equatorial seas, we're going to have um, expanding poleward isotherms. And we expect to see this mirrored in, in species ranges and we are already seeing it sort of start to play out across the globe already. And there are a few sort of key examples that we can pull out from that. So, for example, um, on the east coast of the of the US, we've got lots of sightings or unprecedented sightings of juvenile white sharks are now occurring in the sort of northern area of Monterey Bay in California. And this is said to sort of signal a significant shift in in their young um, white shark range. And that northward range shift is likely due to the fact that the juvenile sharks are having to search for more suitable thermal habitats, and it means that the water temperatures within their preferred temperature range are becoming a little bit more difficult to find. So we're seeing this latitudinal um, um, range shift for this species. And in one particular study, they found that the cold limit that they, the geographical limit that they were experiencing from about the 1980s to 2013, where the the warming was a little bit more stable, was around 30, 34 degrees north on average. And then we had, of course, this marine heat wave in 2014 to 16, And this range jumped to 38.5 degrees north so it's this big latitudinal shift of this particular juvenile stage of this pelagic shark and this gives us a little bit of you know an example of what we might start to see with some more sort of prolonged and, and chronic warming temperatures across the ocean and we've also seen similar shifts in whale sharks as an example so in the atlantic The Azores, we're starting to see more and more sightings of whale sharks around the Azores, and that's been linked to this sort of northern shifting 22 degrees centigrade um, isotherm. And that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping to look at in the last few chapters of my PhD. So are we going to be seeing these shifting latitudinal ranges? What does this mean for equatorial ranges? Are we going to see habitat losses, particularly for whale sharks, which aggregate in some of these areas? Is it going to become too hot for them to aggregate? What's that going to mean for that that life stage of those juvenile males that have to sort of group together in these coastal nurseries and things like that? And this is happening across the board, really. I mean, thresher sharks in the Pacific, and then the Atlantic as well. And of course, as David mentioned, um, species may also alter their vertical depth use. So it's quite complex for us to understand because, of course, they, they exist within these three dimensional environments. So we might see these range shifts, lat- latitudinal shifts. But we also may just see that some species alter their depth distribution in response to warmer Shallow coastal waters, that sort of thing. And this can have quite a lot of knock-on implications for things like tourism. If you um, require a shark to be sighted at the surface, for example, and it's going deeper, what does that mean for that uh, industry? And as David mentioned, you know, exposure to different fishing apparatus at different depths. And there are lots of other variables as well. Um, yeah, dissolved oxygen, as David mentioned, these kind of things all act you know, simultaneously together to try and and well, we have to try and understand what, what that will mean for some of these distributions.
0: Definitely. So many, so many question marks. And for any future scientists, marine scientists listening, these are the areas that, you know, we really, really need people to be to be working on and going into into the future. Quite an interesting point too is this idea that something that I get asked a lot is in terms of climate change, can shocks just not move somewhere else but that's not factoring in sharks that are already kind of at the extremes of their ranges and uh, we had a really interesting episode um, with Jodie Rummer and Carolyn Wheeler as well who work on epaulette sharks who are kind of on coral reefs in Australia and they were saying these these little sharks are basically like can exist like at the extremes already Um, and they're finding it hard when they're trying to you know simulate those experiments in the lab as well so So really, really interesting stuff. Um, But in terms of, we've we've talked about it already, but I just want to pick up on some kind of specific things that both of you have found in terms of how sharks might adapt. So David, just to sort of pull out what you were saying earlier about the fact that blue sharks might have a slight advantage in being able to exploit hypoxia tolerant prey and potentially cope with larger areas of low oxygen. Can you explain maybe a little bit more? about that? Does that mean that they can, they could potentially adapt to future conditions?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd echo what Freya says there in as much that, you know, these pelagic sharks are incredibly good at at having already adapted to a whole set of a whole range of conditions. And they're clearly uh, able to occupy various habitats. Um, We found with the blue shark, not only is, is, does it spend time at the surface where it can feed on Uh, pelagic, you know, silvery shoaling fishes, which of course will also be, if they're hypoxia intolerant, will also be undergoing habitat compression. And we find actually that it's not just blue sharks and short makos, but also oceanic white tips, silky sharks, they're all above this oxygen minimum zone. And that could be because of the foraging opportunities of habitat compression of hypoxia intolerant species. But for the blue shark, I think it it, it looks like it does have an advantage in being able to dive into, at least for short periods, into mild hypoxia, because the short fin mako, some of our results uh, that we haven't published yet, so this is stop press, don't tell anyone about this, will you, it's, ju- it's just <laughs> between us, um, is that the short fin mako can't do it or doesn't choose to do it. All of the makos we've tracked in that eastern uh, tropical Atlantic oxygen minimum zone stays within the top 200 meters it never dives uh, deeper than that and that could be an advantage for it as well it can take advantage of those schooling fishes those silvery fishes that are that are under habitat compression but for the blue shark that has to compete with these other predators like the shortfin mako it, there could be an advantage to diving deeper even if there's a cost attached to that mm. so yeah it's complicated they're, 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 they are widely ranging, but there are limits. And Freya touched on that very, you know, in a brilliant answer, I should say, Freya, that they, they are able to shift, mm. but there will be an upper limit on that. So mm. very complex, lots to do. And I would encourage researchers interested in sharks. This is a burgeoning area. We're just touching on it now The the technology is becoming available. It's a great time to get into it and i'd encourage all of or anyone who's interested to 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 jump full full length into this
0: <laughs> that's a great advertisement <laughs> but yeah for sure any any future shark scientists listening to that that listening to this take that as your as your sign to just go for it um and and go and answer some of those questions for us um, and Freya, I really wanted to ask you. It's slightly different to what we've been talking about, but kind of related as well, um, as to how sharks can adapt to some of these threats. And something that you've been working on is about how whale sharks um, can recover from injury, and it is absolutely fascinating. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you about this paper that you that you published last year.
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm really interested in this threat quantification, um, particularly with whale sharks. And one way that we can start to approach this is by monitoring whale shark injuries or scarring and specifically looking at sort of how many individuals have scars at aggregation sites and how many of these scars uh, are linked to interactions with humans. And these scars have been a really useful um, monitoring method, really, because they can provide us with evidence of interactions that sharks may have been involved in, or events that sharks may have been involved in. And as a result, they can really identify the threats that they're also also exposed to. So my master's thesis sort of compared the frequency of injured sharks across four aggregation sites in the Indian Ocean, and a large proportion of those injuries were linked to vessel collisions, specifically small vessel collisions. So these are these sort of outboard motors with um, fairly small propellers. And especially in places like the Maldives, um, where they have quite a lot of tourism activity there. And as a result of this sort of work, there's a real strong push to kind of improve on regulations in these areas and try and um, develop some stricter enforcement codes around where these these whale sharks are aggregating and we're all just thinking well wow we've got this amazing opportunity where we're encountering sharks quite regularly because of ecotourism so that this was a lot of citizen science involved here as well so we're able to see you know sharks over the course of um, you know, weeks to months quite regularly, and we 're able to therefore track these injuries and Because whale sharks have this unique identification as well we 're able to ID that individual and then see, okay, well, how is that particular wound changing over time so it 's really a great combination of sort of fortuitous circumstances that've allowed us to to get a study um, of this kind so We sort of looked deeper into these injury characteristics, what are they like, how can we determine the source of them, and we tried to develop a way of standardising their monitoring, so we looked at classification methods for severity, size, that sort of thing, and then we quantified the rate of healing, so we were able to use these images of wounds over time to come up with a way of quantifying change over time. And we found just that they had these remarkable healing capabilities. So we were encountering these sharks with huge open wounds um, that were often caused by propeller strikes. And there's one particular shark that comes to mind, called Nakoko, who had a wound that um, actually three separate wounds in a course of three years, all related to propeller strikes. And these were huge, huge lacerations, all of which healed within a couple of months. And now, thankfully, he's completely healed, swimming as normal and moving about quite happily. And it's just a remarkable observation. So what it really tells us is that they're capable of not only sort of responding to some of the threats that we may be presenting them, but perhaps adapting as well in future to some of these more extreme extreme environments. Um, But there is, you know, I mean, in today's science world, this could be seen as quite a positive um, outcome for research because it really does show okay we have a a very resilient animal here that's capable of responding to some of the threats but we do have some you know concerns here because we found that lacerations which are the types of wounds that result from anthropogenic sources things like propellers which are distinct from abrasions which are sort of these surface layer epidermal wounds which tend to result from courtship or perhaps more natural behaviors these lacerations take about twice as long to heal so although they can heal, some of these more serious wounds, these deep lacerations, if they're exposed to these through human activities, essentially it means we're exposing them to prolonged healing times. And we still don't know the sort of sub-lethal impacts of these, these healing times and these injuries. So... You know they, they can be mechanical is you know are they suffering from internal damage? Does it mean that they're assigning more energy towards healing that takes that energy allocation away from growth, reproduction, all of those sort of essential aspects of their aerobic metabolic scope that kind of stuff, perhaps their behaviors may be altered with a debilitating wound doesn't mean that they're less capable of moving to new foraging areas and therefore they remain in the area that they actually originally got the injury which we think might happen with the cocoa because they're less capable of moving about with these huge wounds and that sort of thing is very difficult to monitor so we think that yes it's great that they can heal and and it's really quite an amazing example of this kind of um outcome in, in shark science and the wider field but we really need to prevent some of these really quite serious injuries from occurring and that's through things like encounter codes stricter enforcement of rules in these in these well shark habitats around tourism sites that sort of thing slower boats minimum distances between boats and sharks um that's really important if they are to sort of
0: you know, cope with these with these increased stresses. That's a that's a really important message as well because I think a lot of people, like you said, Freya, they pin a fair bit of hope on the fact that sharks are going to be able to adapt to these extreme changes. But just because they can adapt doesn't mean that that doesn't affect them in some way, um or that they should have to as well. I you know I hope that sometime in the future they don't have to adapt to these stresses that we're talking about. Um, and you were also kind of talking about sort of my, my next question, which is, you know, how we can use this data for good. You know, how can we use this data to change things like fisheries management and policy, but also, you know, tourism, tourism practices as well, like you've just talked about. So, David, I'll come to you. So how, how can you use your um, the, the data from the Global Shark Movement Project? How can data like that be used to inform policy and management strategies?
1: Yeah, it, good question. Um, I mean, it, to me, and I'm biased in this, of course, it, it should really be part of the, the central set of data that fishery managers are looking at. I mentioned it right at the start of our conversation. You can't manage something if you don't know where it is. And OK, you might be able to, um, you know, log the catches that are made by the fishing fleet. But that's not necessarily where all the sharks are. That gives you fishery-dependent uh, uh, maps of, of where you're finding them, relative abundance and so on. But with the satellite tracking data, if we can track enough of these sharks over long enough time periods, we'll be able to map their hotspots of space use. Mm-hmm. And that is a fishery-independent way of looking at important areas for sharks and rays. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the global shark movement and other sorts of projects like it can come into play, making available this global scale ocean basin scale data of where sharks prefer to be, and then to analyse the overlaps. And in fact, this is something that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature is already thinking about, of bringing into red list assessments, the whole idea of what are the important areas for sharks and rays? Obviously, for other red list assessed species, especially terrestrial ones, this is already done. Mm -hmm. But for sharks and rays, the data hasn't been there to do that. But because of the tracking technology, we have another great source of data, um, a fishery independent source of data that we can use to identify those important areas. And so linked to that is obviously what I was talking about with climate change, the ocean... Uh, uh, deoxygenation climate driven changes in where the sharks are and obviously that alters the rates at which they are exploited as I mentioned they're easier to catch it seems or the catches are higher in areas where they have vertical habitat compression such as the oxygen minimum zone so we've we've really got to get used to the idea that management measures have got to mitigate you know in in being put into place they've got to mitigate the effects Mm. of climate change and at the moment that isn't the case for pelagic sharks
0: oh my goodness I could I could talk to you both all day and pick your brains all day there's endless possibilities of the, the avenues that we can go down but I've kept you for long enough, um but I'm sure our listeners will have loved hearing about all of that, and you know the the public and you know citizens as well, the work is so, so incredibly fascinating. but we I do have one final question. it is a very, very quick one um and it's a bit of a silly one, but it's one of our favorites, which is if you could be any species of shark and ray in the world, what would you be, and why? So Freya I'll come to you first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah
2: that's quite a tough question to answer I think but I think given my sort of inherent wanderlust I'd probably have to be one of these wide ranging kind of oceanic nomads that gets to swim amongst the world oceans so I'm kind of drawn towards the blue shark for that reason because they are one of the most wide-ranging sharks and they're really beautiful and they've got loads of awesome adaptations that David's spoken about. But the one thing that draws me away from that is the fact that it would probably be too cold. Um, Yeah, they like to live in these quite chilly environments compared to my preferences. So with that in mind, I think I probably have to say the whale shark, which I didn't want to because I do too much about whale sharks, but I can't deny the fact that I just love them. So, you know, cruising around these warm tropical waters, all I have to do to feed is just open my mouth. Very relaxed lifestyle. An added bonus, if I was one, I'd have a sort of more of an understanding about where they're going and what they're doing, which means my PhD would be a lot easier. So I'd probably have to say whale shark
0: oh that's an amazing answer everyone loves whale shark Cliche, I don't, there's anything yeah. wrong with saying whale shark at all um <laughs> and they do have a very nice existence and I love the idea that you picked your answer based on what would advance your science more <laughs> yeah. and David how about you
1: yeah Freya stole my reasoning there because I was, <laughs> I was thinking that it'd be great to be a shark um that would get into regions that we know very little about yeah, yeah. and so for that reason, I think I try and be one of these deep diving sharks, a shortfin yeah. mako, a blue shark, mm-hmm. uh, or perhaps a, a deep diving uh, ray. I know that some of those devil rays go really deep mm. um, that they've tracked from the Azores. And I just love to explore and to see what's down there in these depths, um, but also, you know, spend time lounging around in these tropical waters. So you know, makers and blues. They you know, let's say a maker can can swim sort of slow if it wants to enjoy the warmth. Then it can dive deep on an exploration, um, but then also it can dive super. It can swim super fast as well. And I really like that sort of speed element. You know. Mm. Um, uh, I don't have a sports car, but it would be great if I did. You know, um, for me anyway. I don't know about any other road user. Um, yeah. It would just be fun to to have those different aspects, and, and so I reckon I yeah I'd like to be a, a shortfin mako for a while, before mm. I then had a go at being a basking shark. I'd like that as well. Oh. Uh, but then I'd like to be a cat shark as well, a small spotted cat shark. <laughs> you yeah, know, tooling around on the reef. I think that would be really good yeah. as well.
0: Get the so, best of get the best of all worlds. I think <laughs> your basking shark. And the cat shark maybe would be nice retirement options so when you finish your life <laughs> as a short film mako and you've retired go, you can have yeah. quite a nice relaxing life as a basking shark just swimming yeah. around and swim around with your mouth open
1: that's, <laughs> a, that's a plan that's a plan yeah
0: they're both brilliant answers and you've um you know you've you've been so generous with your time and given me such amazing detailed answers and it's been so fascinating to get to know both of you and your work um and i wish you all the best of luck with your phd and with the global Shop movement project moving forwards and um, but yes thank you so so much for your time
1: thanks that's great and i'd just like yeah, to sh- shout out sorry Freya, i just okay. like to shout out to the save rc's foundation because um i was probably one of the first grantees or you know one of a small group when they fir- when the foundation first started they supported our work on blue sharks and mako sharks and we wouldn't have been able to talk about this work actually <laughs> without the pump priming funding that the save our seas foundation provided us so really it's gone full circle actually and i'm really happy for that yeah
0: oh amazing oh that's a really nice note to end it on uh, awesome no thank you both so much The Whole Tooth is a podcast brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It is produced and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos, and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. If you like this episode, be sure to rate, review and subscribe. This means so much to us and helps us spread the word about how awesome sharks are. And if you would like one of your questions answered on the pod or just wanna say hi, Please feel free to email us on isla at savercs.com. A huge thank you to David and Freya for their time, their knowledge, and brilliant work, and to you at home for listening. Have a awesome week, and we'll see you next time.